1: Hello, Decode, your burnout fans, and welcome to another episode with me, Dr. Sharon Grossman. I am delighted to be back this week with a very special guest. She's going to be talking to us about something that we haven't really touched on before, and I'm going to keep it a little bit mysterious just for a moment. Her name is Loretta Bruning, and she is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and Professor Emerita of Management at California State University, East Bay. She's the author of many personal development books, including Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin levels. Now, as a teacher and a parent, she wasn't convinced by prevailing theories of motivation. Then she learned about the brain chemistry, where we share with earlier mammals and everything that started to make sense. She began creating resources that have helped thousands of people make peace with their inner mammal. And Dr. Brooding's work has been translated into, if you can believe it, 12 languages and is cited in major media. So I'm super excited to have her. now before teaching, she worked for the United Nations in Africa. Loretta gives zoo tours on animal behavior after serving as a docent at the Oakland Zoo. She is a graduate of Cornell University and Tufts. The Inner Mammal Institute offers videos, podcasts, books, blogs, multimedia, a training program, And a free five day happy chemical start. So, if you want to hear more, and we'll certainly talk about it towards the end as well, you can go to innermammalinstitute.org. And, Dr. Lorbetta, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. It is like amazing to list out all of your accomplishments. You have so much interesting things that we can dive into. I'm super excited to kind of see where this goes. But before we do, I know that you shared before we started recording that you do have a burnout story that you would like to talk about briefly. So why don't we start with that and then we'll take it from there.
2: Sure. Well, I had been a college professor for 25 years and my own children all left the home. And so I was finally able to stop and think, and I really didn't like what I was doing at all. Because I felt like my students were, frankly, there was a lot of cheating going on at my school and I just didn't feel good about what I was doing, Mm. but I couldn't really find a next step. And so I actually retired. I got this letter like when I turned 50 that I qualified for retirement and actually retired just after that at 50 without knowing what else I was going to do. And I was sort of lucky in a way because, well, first my husband went along with this, but my father sort of had a meltdown in his late fifties because he had been doing the whole thing, the same thing his whole life. And so it sort of gave me permission, like, well, not only is it okay to just stop, but in fact, it's actually a good thing, you know, so I should stop before I have a meltdown.
1: Yeah. So you're saying that the main reason that you felt kind of burned out was because the students were cheating?
2: Yes. And I felt guilty about sort of passing people along without looking too closely because that was the culture in my school. Mm -hmm.
1: So, what we're talking about is an environmental culture that didn't really fit with your values. And so, there was that friction internally for you that really caused a lot of your burnout. And obviously having that story of your dad in the background was kind of a reminder of maybe this is where I'm heading if I don't make a change. And I love that you said you gave yourself permission to make a change at 50, which I think is something that a lot of people need to hear. We need to be able to give ourselves permission to make changes, to do it when we feel that we're going down the wrong path. When the path that we're on isn't aligned with our values, when we feel stuck and we feel like whatever we're doing is really not working for us, that we don't have to stay stuck in it. We don't have to be miserable for the rest of time, simply because we decided on this path 20 years or 30 years before.
2: Yes. And I sort of went around in circles for a couple of years and then I decided it doesn't matter my fault, their fault, no fault. It's just like, I've been doing the same thing for 25 years. It's enough.
1: You know, it's not just about necessarily always making a change that's drastic. I also want to share that there's something called job crafting that you can do. So for those of you listening who are like, yeah, I have been doing the same thing. It's kind of a grind or it's kind of status quo, groundhogs day every single day. You could go the route of changing your career, which a lot of people have been doing since COVID, as you know. And I also want to just mention that the other possibility is if you do love the work that you do or the industry that you're in, but you're maybe just a little bored, that maybe think about how to craft the work that you're doing and maybe just pivot within that or maybe take on a new project or think about other roles within your organization. So there's always room for growth. And this is really an invitation for you to explore where it is you could go in order to keep the excitement and the joy in your work because there's no point in just showing up and checking a box. That's not what this is about. So you decided to make this change. Tell us where you ended up going and what made you decide to go down that road?
2: When I had free time, I started reading a lot of evolutionary psychology, which is a field that didn't exist when I was in college. And I had always loved psychology and read a lot of psychology books and self-improvement books because I grew up in a really bad place and I always knew that I needed to sort of, let's say, rewire my operating system. But I never was a professional in the psychology field, and I think that was good because it didn't force me into any one paradigm. So I could study all different approaches and connect the dots. And after I read about evolutionary psychology, I was amazed because the... um parallels between human emotions and animals was so obvious. And then when I found that our positive and negative feelings are created by chemicals and that animals have the same chemicals and their chemicals turn on for reasons that are so obvious, then it really showed me how my inner mammal works.
1: So I know there's probably a lot of people who might be listening to this now and saying. What chemicals are we talking about? And what do we have in common with these other animals? Like, I'm sure it's bringing up a lot of curiosity. So, can you maybe dive in a little bit and tell us what positive and negative feelings would you say are created by chemicals? Which chemicals? And how is this relevant to maybe people who are feeling really stressed out? Resentment is a big feeling that people who are burned out experience those are i would say probably the two biggest ones but there's some other ones for sure like frustration anger despair those kinds of things so so if somebody's listening to this and they do have those kinds of emotions that they feel stuck with what would you say what are those chemicals what can they do about it
2: sure that's a lot so i'm talking about dopamine serotonin oxytocin and endorphin and when you said well what do we have in common with animals so these chemicals are controlled by our limbic system, which is sometimes called the emotional brain. But structures like the amygdala and the hippocampus that people have heard about, they're the same in animals. So even though animals don't have the big cortex we have, our big cortex doesn't control our chemicals. And anytime you're doing something that an animal could do, then your limbic system is involved, and which is all the time. And if you want to feel good, you have to get it from the animal part of your brain. Now let's talk about the chemical, the sentiments you talked about. So resentment. Mm -hmm. So that's a great example. So All of these chemicals, all of these good feelings are wired by your past experience. So anything that turned on a good feeling in your past... Oh, and the bad feeling is cortisol that people often hear about as the stress chemical. So anytime a chemical flows, neurons connect, and that makes it easier to turn on the same response next time. Now, when you get more than you expect... Dopamine surges. And that's the feeling of like, wow, it's a jackpot feeling. When you get less than you expect, cortisol is turned on. That's a threat feeling. But that's just because it's your animal brain's way of saying, don't invest more effort in that because when your survival would be threatened if you continually invest effort in something that doesn't get a reward on your energy. So resentment is when you invest in something repeatedly and you get less than you expected. Now, separate from all of this, we have the urge for social rewards that we could go into. So if you invest in getting social rewards and you don't get them because you can't control others, then especially then you have that disappointment, social disappointment is cortisol and repeatedly wires you then to be going into that resentment feeling a lot.
1: That makes really good sense. And I love this idea of more or less than you expect and how that really correlates with whether you feel good or you feel bad. And I think there's two really important pieces to what you just said. One is, The direction, right? Is it good or is it bad? The feeling that you have and how it always comes back to expectation. And I love that so much because when we talk about stress, stress is really about your perception of things. And so when you perceive things to be a threat or when you perceive the demands on you to exceed your resources, these are all kinds of different definitions of what stress actually is. Then you create this more negative feeling within you. And so I love that it comes back to expectation because even your expectation are your thoughts. It's something that you have control over. And what I find is that so many people live in anxiety about a potential disappointment that they hold themselves back and they play small and they're just kind of stuck in that anxious state. And it's almost like, this idea of I could potentially be disappointed is so threatening that we are willing to give up on so much in life to avoid that feeling. And I think this is a really important message because basically what that means is you're just afraid of feeling your feelings and your feelings aren't as dangerous or as like you don't have to get stuck there. In other words, there's just a chemical impulse. That's what we're basically saying, isn't it? Yes, exactly.
2: It's very funny that on The Simpsons, Homer Simpson is always giving his son the advice, don't try because you might get disappointed. So obviously it's a parody, but also it shows how common this is. Now, the reason it feels so overwhelming is because the mammal brain has life and death feelings to everything. So frustration, for example, you mentioned, Mm -hmm. is the expectation that nothing you do will work. So you've already tried everything you could think of. Your brain is designed to focus on your next step, but you can't think of a next step that you expect to work. So you just expect everything to work out badly, you trigger threat chemicals, and from your mammal brain's perspective, it feels like your survival
1: is actually threatened. That's interesting, because I kind of think of anxiety in that way too, because it's such a future-based kind of an emotion. It's You're nervous about something bad happening that hasn't yet happened, but because you create that story in your head... It's like you're already living that disappointment or that bad experience without it actually happening and our brain as you know doesn't tell the difference between what's real and what's not. So we're kind of so afraid of the bad thing that's going to happen that we're already pre like experiencing it without it actually having to ever happen in the real world.
2: Yes, but it's helpful to know for people to know why they do this because expectations are real physical pathways in your brain. Mm-hmm. So we're born with billions of neurons, but very few connections between them. And each time we have a surge of emotion then connections build. So when you have had a disappointment in the past, neurons connect, and it's like you don't touch a hot stove twice because your brain warns you in advance, hey, don't touch that hot stove again. So there's, a, let's say, a good reason that your inner mammal is trying to protect you, yeah. but then you have to just redirect it. Otherwise, you'll just spin your wheels.
1: 100%. So I know that you have some myths that you came on here to debunk for us. So I'm wondering if you can tell us what is the one of the biggest myths with regards to these chemicals that you often come across, and can you debunk that for us?
2: Sure. Well, people expect that their happy chemicals should flow all the time. And if they don't, there's something wrong with you. And then you can go in and get fixed the way a car gets fixed, like it's broken and an expert does it for you. So in fact, our happy chemicals are not designed to flow all the time. Each one evolved to do a very specific job and is only released in a moment when it's appropriate to motivate you to act for that specific reward And then it stops and the good feeling ends. It's like an animal sees food in the distance and dopamine turns on that motivates it to go toward the food. But once it gets the food, the dopamine stops because it has already done its job. So we're not meant to just have happy chemicals flowing all the time for doing nothing.
1: And that's really an important takeaway for people because, you know, life, as we know it, has ups and downs. And we're so afraid of the downs that we're trying to live in this utopian world where we're constantly happy. And we have a lot of that with instant gratification, technology, all the things that actually make life a lot easier for us. But I'm also saying that people's frustration tolerance has gone way down. And so we're always having these unrealistic expectations that we should be happy all the time. And I'm glad that you're here to tell us like that's actually not how we're designed. That's not supposed to work that way. And here's why, right? Because it's supposed to be something that motivates you. Imagine if that was true and you were happy all the time. Now you needed to go and do something. You'd have no motivation to do it. And so it it actually couldn't work, right? It just doesn't work. Because if you're not going to be motivated and going out and doing things, you actually never really accomplish anything. You're just kind of laying back on your laurels and not really motivated to do much. And that, I think a lot of our joy comes from being engaged and trying on new things and accomplishing things. So if there's no motivation, we actually can never reach those levels. And so we actually need that dopamine to come in to motivate us so that we can experience more of that joy in our lives.
2: Exactly. And just for people to know why this is hard so that we can have that self-acceptance, the dopamine stops when you get what you seek. So your brain is constantly habituating to what you already have. So if I have hot running water, doesn't make me happy at all, even though my ancestors would have been very happy with it. And interesting example is you know people who work very hard to get to a certain goal. Yes. and then it doesn't excite them anymore. Yes. And it's really a natural thing because our ancestors, like they worked very hard to find a fruit tree. But then once they had enough fruit, then fruit was no longer meeting a nutritional need. So they had to work very hard to find protein or water. So the point of your brain is to focus on the next need, the unmet need rather than make you happy just appreciating what you already have. And I think
1: part of the issue, at least for me, the way I look at it, is that we're confounding two different concepts. So we're confounding like getting your need met and being happy. So in the example of let's say running water or anything else that is a goal for you, losing weight, making more money, whatever it is, we want to accomplish that goal to achieve a certain need to meet a certain need but we tell ourselves when i have that need met then i'll be happy but it's not that you'll be happy you'll just have that need met and the thing about happiness is that you don't need those things to necessarily be happy there's plenty of people who don't have running water and they're happy it doesn't mean they don't need it it just means that they don't need it to be happy And I think it's when we think that when I make my million dollars or when I make the next sale, or when I have that relationship, you know, then I'll be happy. You're, you're really setting yourself up because it doesn't work that way, right? You can be happy right now. It's just really a decision that you have to make for yourself. And it's about your context and the way that you describe things for yourself. And it's a choice. It really is. And I think The more people wrap their head around that, the more empowered they're going to be to make the choice to be happy, even when things aren't perfect in their life and they haven't yet met the goal. And the other point that I wanted to make with regards, you were talking earlier about expectation is when we set a goal, we're going after something that we want, but there's also science that shows that we actually experience that dopamine hit just by visualizing us having it without actually... Ever getting to that place. So even when you're on your way, you can experience those same chemicals because you're motivated and you're excited about it and you're thinking about it. So I think just being on the journey is the thing that can fill you up with all of those really positive chemicals. It's not about getting there per se.
2: Yes, exactly. You raise the example of a person who thinks they'll be happy when they lose weight. So this is a good example of social needs, meeting social needs. So a person gets the idea that when their body is perfect, when they have a perfect appearance in one way or another, then their social needs will be met. So it's important to understand what social needs are from the mammal brain's perspective, because it's much more complicated than, than people are expressing it today. So in the animal world, first, like we hear all like that warm and fuzzy view of animals and the acceptance and belonging thing. But in fact, animals, when they're with the herd, they get protection. They want protection from predators. And that's really a selfish thing. Like, I want you to protect me. Mm -hmm. But then when animals have too much togetherness, they fight. They have a lot of tension. And so they really would rather distance themselves. But then they smell a predator and they go back to the herd. So there's that frustration back and forth. And we have this chemical called oxytocin that rewards us with Mm. a good feeling when we have protection and the safety of social support. So we want that. And as you know, there are people who get it without having a perfect appearance. And then if you have a perfect appearance, you may not get it because you may have some negative expectations about social support, which are easy to have because everyone gets disappointed. And that's whole one thing, and then the other thing is there's a different social need that comes with serotonin. and that's social importance. And the way of thinking about that is that once an animal is in the herd, it's at the bottom of the hierarchy. And biologists have known for a hundred years that mammals have hierarchies in their groups. And if you're at the bottom of the hierarchy, your chances of your gene surviving are lower. And as you rise, your chances of your gene surviving are higher. So, animals are not conscious of their genes, and we're not consciously motivated by our genes. But your happy chemicals are stimulated when you do things that raise your social importance. And once all of your other needs are met, this is what your brain focuses on. And so, this is what drives people crazy.
1: <laughs> and, you know, as you're talking about dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin, I can't help thinking about the three burnout profiles that I share about in this show, which is the thinker, the feeler, and the doer. And so I kind of thought it'd be fun to bring it back to that in a way. So, you know, we talked about serotonin is about social importance. And when I think about burnout and how that relates, I think about people who burn out because they're not getting the acknowledgement that they think they deserve based on all the work that they do. And so they feel a lot of resentment and they start burning out because of that. And so I think that ha- that happens in particular, I think, with thinkers. Those are the people who are very much in their head and they've got a lot of negative thoughts. And so they're kind of spinning in on those thoughts. Then we have the oxytocin, which is clearly more of a feeler kind of a chemical. And the reason for that is, you know... Oxytocin is about social support. And what we see with feelers is that they are the people who are seeking out other people's approval, but in a different kind of way. They are the people pleasers. They are trying to take care of everybody and be accepted. And so, a lot of reasons that they burn out for is because they're taking on too much of other people's stuff. They don't have the boundaries in place. They really want people to be taken care of, you know, and they're putting themselves on the back burner. And ultimately, the doer is the person who has that dopamine thing that they're looking for by constantly trying to do, do, do more, 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 and feel that dopamine rush from the achievement, from the accomplishment. And so it's kind of interesting. There's these parallels of the chemicals with these three burnout personalities.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. But it's also important to realize that we all want all of these chemicals. It's just that maybe we're in the habit of focusing on one, but we do need all of them.
1: Of course. Of course. So we've talked about how we have these different myths about dopamine, and we've talked about oxytocin, and we've talked about serotonin. Is there anything else you want to share with us about these chemicals that we need to know about?
2: Sure. So I think it's important to know that social comparison is a natural thought loop for mammals. So maybe people have watched nature videos and they see that like if a monkey grabs for a piece of fruit near a stronger monkey, it's going to get bitten. So it pulls back. It it's cortisol is released when you see that you're the smaller monkey and somebody else is the big monkey. Then when you, in order to survive, the monkey has to find the opportunity to be the big monkey so it can get the fruit. So it compares itself to others. And when it sees that it's stronger or has the advantage, then serotonin is released. And that's the good feeling that we're looking for. And it's not aggression, it's confidence in your own strength. And you can give it to yourself. We would really rather get it from a pat in the back and applause from the world but the bottom line is that, you know, in the monkey world, it has to be somewhat realistic. You have to have some strength to get it, and you will always live in a world where there are other individuals that are stronger than you. So if you dwell on the strengths of others, you make yourself miserable. So we have to be very conscious of our social comparison because otherwise we think other people are doing it to me. They're putting me down when really I'm the one that's doing all the comparing and
1: judging. And that's actually a really important thing that I see a lot is the social comparison. And we tend to compare up. We compare like everybody who's doing better than us, who is getting the promotion and who's you know making more money or is more successful. And we feel inferior when we can just as easily compare ourselves to people who aren't doing as well and feel that sense of confidence and the serotonin that you mentioned. So really the opposite of Feeling that you have that advantage and getting that confidence in the serotonin is what you said earlier, which is anytime you feel the bad chemicals or you're feeling negative, that's cortisol. And cortisol is going to be a result of comparing up and feeling inferior in comparison. We call that compare and despair. Yes.
2: And uh, when you said about you could always compare to someone in a position of weakness and feel good, now that sounds mean. And people might have a bad reaction to that. So that's why I've written a new book called Status Games, where I try to explain like a kinder, gentler way to do it, because there is not really an alternative. So, you know, people say, well, you should compare yourself to your personal best. Yes. And that's true, but we, we all know that we sort of want more. So what I say is to put yourself up without putting others down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like somebody that has to find fault with other people every minute just to make themselves feel stronger. And the reason they're doing that is because in between that, they're putting themselves down. So you have to notice when you're putting yourself down and start putting yourself up and you have to take action so that that you're proud of so that it's easier to put yourself up.
1: Well, I have to say you are just a delight. And you have such great, incredibly interesting work that I think very much resonates with my work of burnout. And so I'm so glad that you were able to come on and share your unique perspective on this. If somebody is listening to this and they're interested in following you or getting more information about what you do, where do they go?
2: innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org.
1: Fantastic. Well, again, thank you again for being here and it really was very interesting, at least for me. I hope everybody who's listening also thinks so. And as I mentioned before, I'm always interested in seeing how all of our guests and their very special expertise relates back to what we're talking about here on the show which is burnout. So for all of you thinkers out there, what did you think of the show? And do you relate to this idea of serotonin and social importance being something that perhaps specifically and especially leads you to burnout? And if you're a feeler, does the idea of oxytocin and the social support component, does that really trigger anything for you? And for you doers out there, What about that idea about dopamine that we talked about? I mean, I think this is fascinating. And of course, there's gonna be all kinds of crossovers. We're all humans and we all experience all of these things. Now, regardless of what your personality code is, as you know, my goal is to spread the word that burnout is a unique experience and that by decoding it, you can find solutions that are equally unique to you. Help me spread this message by subscribing to the show on Apple or Spotify and leaving us a review telling us what you think, feel, or do differently because of the show. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can also leave me a comment or questions to answer in future episodes. And please recommend the show to anyone struggling with burnout. If you're ready to take the next step with me to decode your burnout, go to decodeyourburnout.com and I'll see you right back here next week. Take care.